So one of the greatest problems facing believers today is that once we begin to settle into the promises, we've conquered the enemy, we're at rest in our allotments from the Lord, we're like, oh, you know, I've got peace on my borders, everything is going great, that I have seen this, and it's not a good thing, but I have seen Christians begin to turn on other Christians, and suddenly they begin to disqualify other Christians, They begin to disinherit other Christians, like, oh, I'm not related to them. They're not real Christians. I'm a real Christian. They begin to divide against each other, like, did you hear what they did? What do you think about that? Are you on my side? Are you on their side? Begin to disagree, I mean, publicly, uh, voraciously. They begin to disassociate, disregard, dismiss, and even discredit You see, we too easily turn our hearts away from those who have fought for us, fought that we might have the promises of God, prayed for us, fought alongside of us, sought our best, you know, prayed for us. David said, you know, I prayed for them when they were on their sickbed and then they turned against me, David, the psalmist, or we turn our hearts away from those who have desired to see us live in the promises of God. How does this happen? How does that happen to us who are believers? I'll tell you, it is when we stop fighting the real enemy of our soul, when we stop fighting Satan, our own flesh, and the devil, that's when we will begin to turn on each other because we forget what Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6, that our real battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And when we forget this, we lose the value of the souls that Jesus died for. We need to remember John three sixteen: for God so loved the world. We live in the world among the humans, among the mankind that God so loved, so desired that he sent his only son that they would not perish, but have everlasting life. We forget that God goes after the one in 99. He goes after the lost. He goes after the sinners and that all of heaven rejoices. It erupts in joy over a sinner that comes to salvation. And we forget how costly the redemption of our brothers and sisters were. That it cost the precious blood of Jesus Christ to redeem that person. It tells us in Psalm 49, 8, for the redemption of their soul is costly. We forget that every believer is a miracle of God. It's like we should look at each other and go, you received the good news. I received the good news. You love Jesus. I love Jesus. We should be so thankful that we're not the only ones in the world who know Jesus, but that we have this huge family. We should remember that every believer is a testimony to the power of the gospel. We can look at other believers and say, see, look at them. It works. See them. It works. It works. It works. The gospel works. Every believer is beloved and treasured by God. Is that how we're looking at 
and considering our brothers and sisters are we're looking at each other and going, oh, you treasure of God. Oh, you beloved. Because that's what we should be doing. But we forget. We stop listening to other believers and we start judging with our eyes. And when we stop seeking the welfare of the whole body of God, for all those who are in Christ Jesus, when we stop seeking that welfare, the best for the whole body, assumption and presumption begin to prevail. We begin to assume and presume about others. And I believe that presumption and assumption are the evil twins of misunderstanding and folly. Because what happens is we begin to think that it is our righteousness or our personal morality or our methodology, the way we do things, that is the great witness to the world. But the truth is, and what Jesus told us in John 13, 35, it's not our morality. It's not our righteousness. It's not our methodology, but it is our love for one another that testifies to the world that we are truly the disciples of Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness and outward morality can create competition and pride rather than love and grace. This is not a new problem, nor is this problem exclusive to the church. It has been around ever since creation. And it is something that we see in Joshua 22 that the children of Israel struggled with. The Bible exhorts us that rather than rushing to judgment, we are to believe the best about each other. This is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that wonderful chapter on love. It says, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things in verse 7. In James 1.19, it tells us as believers, we are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. In other words, we're supposed to listen. We had a pastor for ages. Um, he became very famous. He used to be a drill sergeant, and his name was Romaine. And he would always say, God gave you two ears and one mouth because you're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. Uh, if only that was true of all of us. But we're told in Romans 14, 19, we are to pursue peace and the things that make for peace. First Peter 1, 22 says we are to love one another fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. We're told that we're to be thankful for one another, as Paul says in Philippians 1, 3, that I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Isn't that incredible that every time Paul thought about the Philippian church, about their salvation, about what God had done in their lives, he says the same thing to the Thessalonians. Every time I think about you, I'm so thankful. I just thank God and I begin to pray and praise. And we are to seek to bless others. First Peter 3, 9 tells us that we are called to bless, that we might be a blessing and be blessed. I think in the church today, and the, and the, maybe it's Facebook and all the divisions we see on that, and people are saying things on Facebook, typing things that they would never say in front of somebody. And they're cruel things. But I think that there is way too much cursing going on. 
dismissal, degrading of people. And we need to seek the Lord Jesus Christ that we might truly, truly love one another as he loves us. This is the will of God, that we would love one another fervently. In Judges 22, 1 through 9, we see the integrity of the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that live on the east side of the Jordan. Joshua calls these tribes together, and he commends them for all that they were tasked with, they did. Everything Moses commanded them, they did. They kept the charge that Moses had given them. These men delayed their own gratification to fight for the other tribes of Israel that they might settle in and claim their inheritance. These men delayed moving into their own inheritance until all the allotments were given out, until every other tribe moved into their territory. Not only that, but these men fought for their brethren, that their brethren might have their allotment, that their brethren might enjoy all the promises of God. These men sacrificed their own welfare, their own lives, their own comfort, their own families, with their families for the other tribes of Israel. And now that all the tribes have their allotments, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half of Manasseh may return to the eastern side of Jordan and begin to live in their possessions in the land given to them by the word of the Lord through Moses. However, before they leave, before they cross over to the other side of Jordan, Joshua has a special charge for them. In Joshua 22, 5, he says, But take diligent heed to the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to the Lord, to serve him with all your heart and soul. This reminds me of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Joshua is saying, you might be crossing over, and you're going to be settling into your land, and things are going to go much easier. But you need to remember the commands of God and to hold fast to everything that the Lord has told you and to serve him. This charge is to be their top priority. If they keep this charge, they will be blessed. They will multiply. They will prosper. They just need to continue to put the Lord first. Joshua then blesses them in verse 7. And in verse 8, he gives them their share of the spoils. They go with his blessing, his commendation, his affirmation, his gifts, and this charge. This charge which if they obey, they will prosper. Now on the way back, they become concerned. Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh and Reuben. We learn in verse 24 that they're afraid that the Western tribes at some point will try to exclude them from the blessing and heritage of God. They say, you know, we fought for these guys, but you know, I don't know if I can, we can really trust, you know, Asher and Zebulon and Dan and Judah. So in order to safeguard themselves against future division, they built a replica of God's altar at Shiloh. They built a replica of the altar on which the sacrifices for Israel 
are made every day, and then of course for the whole nation, once a year on Yom Kippur. Perhaps they are remembering when they crossed over the Jordan with the other tribes of Israel, and how Joshua had 12 of the leaders collect stones out of the midst of the Jordan and set them up at the camp of Gilgal so that all the children would remember what God had done. Perhaps they wanted a monument to remember what God had done. We know that they wanted it so that the Western tribe of Israel, Western tribes of Israel would remember that the Eastern tribe, those on the east side of Jordan, were also their brethren, were also loved, were also part and partakers in the blessing of God. Now the children of Israel, those on the Western side, according to verse 11, heard someone say, isn't that how it always starts? Well, I heard someone say, I had this uh, friend of mine when I lived in Vista and was part of the women's ministry. She'd always come to me. She said, now someone said, there was never a name. It was always someone said, and I'm like, who is someone? Who is this person that's always saying something, you know, something that we have to do. And I said, unless they come to me, they must not really mean it. I want to see their face. I want them to say to me face to face. Then I'll know. But it was always someone said. And always that someone, whoever that someone was, was creating a lot of problems and always complaining. But it begins with this outward observation that someone assumes or presumes with what they see. Then people weigh in on what it means. I saw that they erected an altar on the western shore of Jordan. And somebody says, what? They built an altar? They're turning to idolatry. And somebody else says, oh no, they're trying to say that they own the western side and the eastern side. And it leads to a judgment call. And we read in this passage that everyone took up arms at Shiloh. In other words, the other nine and a half tribes, they all gather together at Shiloh and they've come together with their swords and with their clubs and, you know, with whatever instruments of war that they've had, they come, they are just because of what they heard, because of what someone said, they are armed and ready for war. This is what was said. And this is what it evolved into. Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side occupied by the children of Israel. I, I just want to comment on this. Someone said just, just one more time. When I was a little girl, I used to sneak in at night into my mom and dad's bedroom. And I loved to sleep with them. I get scared. I had a room on the front of the house. I'd hear voices and people talking. And so I would run down the hallway into their room. Well, my mom, um, she would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and sometimes see apparitions and stuff. And so this one night she woke up and she had this styrofoam head that held a wiglet. I don't know how many of you remember wiglets, but those were like those hair pieces that women used to put on the back of their head so they looked like they had more hair and it was all curled so they could just stick their hair in a ponytail and put this wiglet on and look, you know, coiffured. And so mom had this wiglet 
on top of this white styrofoam hat, because it was the middle of the night, she's just waking up. She thought that the wiglet, instead of me, was moving towards her, that this white styrofoam head was coming right at her. And my mom began to scream, and my mom could scream. Man, that woman has vocal cords. And my dad was sound asleep, and he just rolled over and covered her mouth. So now her mouth is covered, so she's really like, and she can't think because she just is awakened, you know, to hit my dad or to stop him. So she's screaming. I'm trying to sneak into their bed. I just fall on the floor and start crying really loudly because I'm scared to death. The next thing I know, my brothers come rushing in. One's got a baseball bat. One's got like a hockey stick. And then my sister comes running down the hall with a lamp. (laughs) You know, and somebody has the good sense to finally turn on the light. And you realize, no, the wiglet is not flying around the room. And my dad sleeps through all of it. He's still asleep. You know, I'm crying. The boys are yelling. My sister's like, well, get you, you terrible person. And my mom's screaming and my dad's sleeping. And my mom just finally, she takes, she's like, Chuck, wake up, wake up. We just had an emergency and you slept through all of it. (laughs) We just all laughed. But again, you know, that's, someone said, you know, it started out with me going into my parents' room at night because I was afraid and turned into this whole fiasco. But think about that. All the things that start with just this small little thing and turn into this big fiasco. And that's what happened. Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh were just concerned that their brethren might try to exclude them. And the next thing you know, the other tribes are taking up arms against them. Now, like the infamous, the infamous game of operator where the message gets all jumbled up as it moves from person's ear to another, as the word spread throughout the tribes of Israel, the misunderstanding grew. Nine and a half tribes on the western side armed for war against their brethren. It's interesting to me to note that they were ready to go against their brethren, even though they failed to drive out the Canaanites. Instead of driving out the Canaanites in their own territory, they're ready to go attack their brethren on the other side of Jordan. Those who made allowances for the Jebusites to stay in Jerusalem are ready to go and attack their brethren. Those who were intimidated by the chariots in the valley are ready to go and attack their brethren. In other words, those who wouldn't fight the real enemies are ready to go and destroy their own brethren. Those who wouldn't possess their whole territory are willing to drive the Eastern tribes out of their territory. This often happens when we forget again who the real enemy is and his tactics. Now at this point, Phineas, who is the son of Eliezer, who is the son of Aaron, he has a suggestion. If you remember Phineas from Numbers 25, He is the priest that is zealous for the Lord against the scourge of the Moabite idolatry. In Numbers 25, the story is given about the Moabite women that came into the camp of Israel right as Israel is about to go over into the Jordan. These Moabite women come into the camp of Israel and they begin to seduce the young men into fornication. And while the men are committing fornication with these young women, these young women bring out their idols. And we're told that they led 24,000 Israelite men into sin because of idolatry. And these 24,000 men perished. 
At the same time, Phineas, he's zealous for the Lord and for the promises of God. And he runs after one of the leaders of Israel who is blatantly defying the law of the Lord. And he runs in after this leader and his mistress. And it's a little gory. He spears them through while they're in the tent. Because this leader, again, was violently and publicly violating the command of the Lord. Now God commended Phineas and said to Moses, Therefore say, Behold, I give to Phineas my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Isn't it interesting, through this violent act, he showed zeal for the Lord, and God gave him a covenant of peace. So now, as we're looking at this situation, this misunderstanding, Phineas is the right man for the job. He will do what is right before God. He will not hold back, even if it means violence. But yet, he's part of a covenant of peace with God. He is head of the tabernacle at Shiloh. He is the spiritual representative of Israel. He is zealous for the people of God. He is zealous for the promises of God. He is zealous for God. And the covenant of peace with God he's, is with him. So he, tends, he chooses 10 rulers out of the nine and a half tribes in Israel. And they are going with him to meet with the eastern Israeli tribes. I love that Phineas does not go with the army of Israel. He says, no, you guys stay here, you know, kind of let your, let your weapons just rest for a moment. Let me just go with 10 people. Let me just go with the judges, the ruler of the different tribes, and, and let me just hear them out. So they meet with the eastern tribes, and strong accusations are waged. We read these strong accusations in verses 16 through 20. Treachery, which is betrayal and trespass. They're accused of treachery. They're committed, uh, that they've committed this treachery against God. They're accused of turning away from following the Lord. They're accused of building an altar for the purpose of rebellion against the Lord. They're told that they've forgotten their history. They've forgotten Numbers 25, which we were talking about earlier, the seduction um, by the Moabite women, where there were 24,000 casualties at Peor. They've forgotten about Achan, the son of Zerah, who took what was forbidden in the battle at Jericho, Joshua 7, and because of Achan, 35 men of Israel were killed. In other words, they're saying to these men, your sin is not just going to affect you, but it's going to affect the whole nation of Israel. And we're mad at you because your sin is ultimately going to hurt us. So they offer a solution or a remedy. You know, often we get in our minds what repentance should look like. You know, it's not just that we want that person to say they're sorry. We have a way that they want. We want them to say they're sorry. You ever do that to your husband? He says, I'm sorry. And you're like, no, you don't mean it. And he's like, sorry. Nope, nope, that didn't do it either. What do you want from me? I want flowers. I want three boxes of chocolate and a gift certificate to South Coast Plaza. And then I'll think about what repentance looks like for you. You know, but we always kind of have these stipulations of what repentance should look like. So these men, these Westerners, had in their mind a way 
for these tribes to repent and be reinstated. It is merciful, but it's unnecessary. They say to them, if it's this land, if it's been on the eastern side of the Jordan, it's, if it's because you're, eastern side, if you're separated from us, if that's what the problem is, if it's the Jordan River, then move, move to the western side, take an inheritance with all of us. And then they say, but whatever you do, do not build your own altar or tabernacle to the Lord. We serve one God. There's only one prescribed place of sacrifice and one way to worship. Now, the Eastern tribe responds to this accusation. It's almost as if they are amazed by what they hear. Have you ever had somebody misread you? And they say, you know, I saw that look that you did. And you're like, what look? Oh, you know, that look. And I'm like, what look did I do? I don't know what my face does when I'm not looking. It, they'll, they'll accuse you of something you never meant. I remember years ago, I'm at a retreat. And I didn't even know I did this. But I guess the pastor's wife had put her hand on mine. And I pulled my hand out. Well, I probably pulled my hand out because I like to do this a lot. And anyway, when I pulled my hand out, at that moment, she was sure I hated her, that I felt that her touch was disgusting. I mean, she had like, by the time she took me aside, she was like sobbing. She was almost convulsive, like, I put my hand on yours. You hate me. Why do you hate me? And I'm like, I don't hate you. Why do you think I hate you? Because I put my hand on yours and you pulled it out. And it was really dramatic the way... I pulled it out. I didn't realize it, like, you know, lighting a match or something. I just pulled it out. And I said, I am so sorry. I am so not aware of what I do. I mean, that's dangerous, I know, but I'm really not aware of half the things I do. And I am so sorry because never, ever have I had that thought. It's never even been in the back of my mind, the front of my mind, the top of my mind, the bottom of my mind, in my mind at all. I love you. And I am so sorry. But you don't. That can happen so easily. And have you ever been amazed by when somebody comes to you and says, you did this? And you're like, I did? I didn't know I did that. No, I didn't mean anything. And I believe at this point that these Eastern tribes are totally amazed at how their memorial could create such ire and indignation and misunderstanding. They immediately appeal to God. I love that. They say, no, look, I'm standing before God. Let God judge. He knows our hearts. He knows our mind. He knows our intentions. Verse 22. And I love this because in Hebrews 4.13, we're told that all things are naked and seen before the God that we stand. God sees the hearts and the motivations. And I believe if either side had sought the Lord, you never would have had the circumstance. You know, I have had it where I am praying for somebody and God literally shows me their heart. I might be coming at it like, Lord, how dare they do this? And why did you do this? And the Lord will say, Cheryl, I want you to see what I see. I want you to see their heart. I want you to see their intention. And when God does that, everything changes. Now in verse 23, they say this, if it is rebellion or treachery against the Lord, then kill us. Or as a friend of mine says, kill me now. Kill me now. If this is our intention, if that is anything that we intended, then we do deserve to die. If they had any intention of making burnt offerings on the, on the, at the Jordan River instead of at the tabernacle, then God should require an account. 
I think it's important to pause and note that neither side, again, inquired of the Lord. Both were seeking to act on God's behalf. They were both seeking to do a godly thing. But you know, if you're going to do a godly thing, it's probably a really good idea to ask God what he wants. Don't you think? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've had birthday presents that I really don't want. And you're like, you could have asked me what I wanted, and I would have told you, and then I could have gotten what I wanted. But we need to ask God, what do you want? What do you want in this situation? Both had godly intentions, but neither side prayed or sought direction from the Lord. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh's motivation, we're told in verse 24, it was fear. It's the what-if syndrome. Note, Again, like operator, it must have started with a suggestion as they were about to cross the Jordan. Someone said, again, someone probably said, what if their descendants try to exclude our sons from the inheritance of the Lord? And someone else said, well, what if they claim that the Jordan is uh, God's barrier between our two tribes? And somebody else said, what if they try to forbid our children from going to the tabernacle? And then someone else added, what if their descendants turn our descendants away from trusting in and serving the Lord? You see, both sides had gone to dangerous conjectures. It wasn't just, you know, the nine and a half tribes on the western side or the two and a half tribes on the eastern side. Both were equally guilty. And it started with fear and distrust and mistrust. And again, because they forgot who the enemy was and they began to fight against each other. Both sides have gone to these dangerous conjectures. Eastern tribes came up with a remedy for their fear. Verse 28, we'll build an altar as a memorial, a witness to both sides that we serve the same God. Now in verse 29, The eastern tribes say, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for the sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. The reasoning of these tribes is just the opposite of what the eastern tribes perceived, assumed, and presumed. Phineas listened. He was willing to have his heart changed. He was willing to give the eastern tribes the benefit of the doubt. He is truly a peacemaker. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. James three eighteen. now the fruit of righteousness, true righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. And in James 2, 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. Phineas is pleased with their answer. He recognizes their innocence. He understands their motivation. He sees their heart. He recognizes that the Lord is among them. There is no treachery. Treachery. Their motivation was actually to be partakers with the Lord. There is no bloodshed, no wrath. Phineas and the representatives take the good report back to Shiloh, and everyone is pleased. They all bless God, and they no longer speak about going to war against their brethren. And they recognize the altar as a witness between the eastern tribes and western tribes that the Lord, the Lord alone, is God. Like these western tribes, we can be too quick to believe the worst about other Christians, to misinterpret their actions, to gather together against other people, other churches, other fellowships, and to take up arms. 
let this story in Judges 22 serve as a cautionary tale that we need to remember always who the real enemy is. It's the world, it's the flesh, it's the devil. It's those powers that war against our soul, those powers that war against the kingdom of God. We need to believe the best about one another according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and leave the rest to God. And we need to seek the Lord to pray for one another, especially before taking up a cause against another believer. Most importantly, we need to value other believers. We need to remember what other believers have done for God, their commitment to the work of God, their relationship to God. The need of the hour in which we live, as we see so much division around us, we see division in politics, division in our nation. In fact, a friend of mine was just telling me that on the ballot, they're putting um, something about California being divided up into three states. We talk about division. The need of the hour right now is agape. It is love. We need to love. We need that 1 Corinthians 13 love. How do we get this love? We have to pray for this love, that we might truly love our neighbors as ourselves. We, we need to pray that we might treat others as we want to be treated, according to Matthew seven twelve, where Jesus said, do unto others as you want others to do to you. Jesus told us that love is the true fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. This is how we truly are righteous. It's when we love. We are, we are never more like Jesus than when we are loving. That is when we are most in the image of our God and Savior is when we love one another fervently. Love will cover a multitude of sin. Love will seek reconciliation before war and dismissal. Love will desire peace and blessing. It is love that will be the witness to the world that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is for us. In closing, I just want to say this. We tend to pick up the affections of those that were most around. Have you ever noticed that? Like you might not really value something until you're with somebody who really values something. My daughter, Kristen, loves vintage. She loves vintage. Now I have to say, vintage was going out when I was coming into the world. I do not like succulents and I do not like vintage. I see it as garage sale, you know, stuff. And my daughter, Kristen, loves vintage, loves succulents. And suddenly, the more I'm with Kristen, the more I begin to value succulents and vintage. I'm like, oh, look at that vintage angel. Look at that vintage table. Look at that. And I really don't like vintage, but because I'm with her and she loves vintage, vintage and succulents all of a sudden have value to me. That which had no value, no place in my heart or my life suddenly become valuable and precious. Why? Because I love my daughter. Because the more I'm with my daughter, Kristen, the more I pick up her values. So let me just say this. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we will love what he loves. And he loves his people. He loves his sons and he loves his daughters. And this will become the true altar of witness between us and others that we truly worship the same God the same Savior, 
Jesus Christ. That's the need of the hour. Agape. Let's pray. Oh, let's stand up and then let's pray. Lord, we ask, Lord, that we would put down our weapons, Lord. Do you know what these weapons are that we've been holding? You know what we heard someone say? You know that the assumptions and presumptions that we've jumped to, Lord. And we ask that you would clear that all away. Lord, that you would remove those from our heart, that there might be more room, greater room for love, that we might truly love one another fervently and appreciate you in them. Lord, that when we look at our brothers and sisters, we might see Jesus and love Jesus in them fervently. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.